6 of our study of the book of Daniel. And today's direction is something that I'm sure most of you are going to be pretty familiar with. But since we've spent so much time here in Daniel, I wanted to take the first few moments just to give a brief recap of all the things that we've seen so far. So our story began in chapter 1, as Daniel and some of his friends are taken captive by the Babylonian Empire from Jerusalem. They were forced to become leading scholars in Babylon so that the king could use them as his own personal advisors. God's hand is visible, even here at the beginning, simply by the fact that they were kept alive after being captured. Pastor Harrell used this line that became a bit of a statement that was a thesis tying together the book of Daniel as a common thread. Despite present appearances, God is in control. Chapter 2 shows us the superiority of God over the Babylonian gods through Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that even his best magicians couldn't interpret to the point that they deemed it impossible. Daniel gets his shot at interpreting, and God empowers him to do it. This leads to an immediate rise to power for Daniel and his friends. God is in control, and a bad situation is turned for good. Chapter 3 actually reads a lot like our story today. We're going to see some parallels happening in a theme from one story to the next. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rose to power along with Daniel. And in the previous chapter, they have, a targets, they have targets on their backs because of the power they've come to. Nebuchadnezzar built a statue of gold in his own image, and he made it a law that the entire kingdom would have to bow in worship. And the entire kingdom bowed, except for our three main characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fiery furnace at the order of the king as punishment once the accusers brought it to his attention. And to sum up an incredibly powerful story, God rescued them from the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar turned to worship God instead. Even in the worst possible circumstance, God was in control. In chapter 4, Daniel interprets yet another dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and his pride is made obvious. And this foreshadows the coming downfall of the Babylonian Empire. And finally, chapter 5 shows us a new king named Belshazzar. He didn't know Daniel, and he does not honor God like the past kings have. The hand of God writes on the wall, leaving a message for the new and prideful king. His days are numbered, and so comes the demise of Babylon. God showed the world what his people have always known in these five chapters. He is still in control. So now that we're caught up, I want to pose my thesis question for today. When you really know someone, does it change the way that you interact with them? My relationship with Kirsten, my wife, is the most profound human relationship in my life. And I know Kirsten better than anyone, and she knows me the same way. Kirsten and I can communicate things with each other without actually saying anything at all because we know each other so deeply. When she arrives home from work, she can communicate her entire day by just giving me a look. And I know whether she had a great day or a rough day. And she doesn't even have to say it. When I am putting off doing the dishes in hopes that she will wash them instead, I hint not so subtly, by offering to do some of the things on her to-do list. And she knows me too well at this point for it really to work out like I hope it does. We know each other's character traits. We know each other's likes, and we know each other's dislikes. 
And that makes it easier for us to expect certain reactions in all kinds of scenarios. The same is true with those that you really know. You can predict how they will respond because you have experienced so much life with them. The more life experiences you share, the more accurately you know someone at a core level. And even beyond that, the deeper you know someone's character, the more accurately you can predict their future courses of action. This is exactly the situation that Daniel finds himself in the beginning of chapter 6. Daniel is once again a leader of a nation that is not his own. He has influence once again, but this time with a new king, King Darius of Persia. And once again, like we know, there's drama in the office at work. Jealousy is rising in the hearts of Daniel's co-workers. These leaders know one main character trait of Daniel, that he had an unshakable faith in God. And more specifically, he had faith in God that he was ultimately in control, regardless of circumstances. Because they knew who Daniel was, they could predict his future behavior. I want you to think back to a time when you might have been trapped into a situation by the manipulation of others. We've all been there at one point or another. Daniel finds himself now enveloped in court drama. He's the victim of a trap that has been manipulated by his enemies, to believe, and they believe that this will surely lead to his downfall. And you may have heard this passage told as a simple Sunday school story, but this narrative is so much larger than that. We're adults now, and we need to see that God is working throughout the story in a lot more ways than God just closing the mouths of lions. So our story opens in Daniel chapter 6 with that scheme against Daniel. The Babylonian Empire now has fallen. It's gone. Persia has now moved in and controls the nation. Belshazzar is dead, and King Darius the Mede is the ruler in charge of this area of the Persian Empire. A new human power has moved in to the palace. But truthfully, not much changes for Daniel. God is still in control. A recurring theme in Daniel's story is opposition from insecure and egotistical kings. And we can predict Darius is absolutely no different. There's some debate on whether or not he's even actually the king of Persia as a whole or simply a vassal king of Cyrus, which could be the source of some of his insecurity. Regardless, we know that he has some character flaws. So Darius has developed this plan to maintain the kingdom for Persia. Daniel chapter 6 verse 1 tells us, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. By now, you should already be able to predict and you should start to feel how the tension will rise since we've been studying this book for six weeks. Darius has appointed what are basically governors over specific regions in that area where they were. And Daniel, by God's hand, yet again, has found favor in the eyes of another new king. Daniel is one of three trusted people just below the king who advise those governors on how they should govern the land. These governors are people who have likely come from a line of people with very high standing in Persia. 
They are people with big political aspirations and are willing to do whatever it takes to get to that next step in power. Daniel, however, was standing directly in the way of this. It's important for us to take a moment and look how Daniel is reacting to this change all around him yet another time in his life. He's experiencing another huge cultural shift from Babylon to Persia. His people are captive to yet another nation that wants nothing to do with God. And even still, Daniel finds himself right at the center of the narrative. God has been faithful to Daniel throughout his entire life as the whole world has changed around him. This is yet another example for us. Despite present appearances, God is in control. One thing really separates Daniel from many of the other characters that we have talked about during this Hall of Faith series. And that one thing is that he remained faithful to God. Something that has been so visible consistently over the course of his entire life is obviously not a passing interest. Faithfulness is very obviously a lasting character trait of Daniel. Now that we see the traits of our two main characters, Darius, the egotistical narcissist, and Daniel, the faithful follower of God, it will be easy to predict the plot of the governors vying for their spot in power. In their attempt to remove Daniel, they even say in verse 5, we will never find any basis against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Knowing both the character of Daniel and the character of King Darius made them formulate the perfect scheme to fool the king and trap Daniel. They were confident that Daniel would remain faithful to his God. And they were confident that Darius would remain centered around his own ego. Because of their knowledge of their character, they could reasonably, reasonably predict their next course of action. So if they were to draft a law that required worship of the king with the penalty otherwise being death, then Darius would be in support of the legally mandated adoration. Alternatively, the faithful Daniel would reject the worship of anyone but God, and he would be put to death. The governing structure then would finally be without the godly oversight of Daniel. So what they do is they bring the plan to the king. So these administrators, in verse 6, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into a lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. You can imagine that the proposal seemed innocent enough to King Darius as they brought it to him. The proposal signaled him as the only king who was worthy of worship, and it appealed to the vanity of the king. And at the same time, this law was a win-win for King Darius. Verse 8 even tells us that the law of the Medes and Persians were irrevocable once they were put into writing by the king. This was a very important detail for the leaders to cover so that not even Darius himself would be able to save someone who broke the law. Then in verse 9, Darius falls into the trap and formally signs the decree. 
The law is in place. It cannot be taken back. Their plan seemed innocent enough to King Darius. And it was working out exactly as they'd hoped. They could predict the behavior, and it worked out perfectly for them. Now, the only thing that they had to do was wait out Daniel. So far, we've been in the throne room of King Darius and in public spaces. The scene of our story now is going to take a major shift as we land in a much more private place, Daniel's bedroom. Daniel found out about the decree made by King Darius, and he knew that the penalty for breaking the new law would be severe. So Daniel had to make a choice between worshiping God through prayer or stop praying. For us, this should be a moment of flashing lights, caution lights, and we should be slowing down the process. When we think of the Christian life, I can think of at least three spiritual practices, three spiritual habits, that almost anyone in the world, regardless of background, would be able to tell you about our faith. Attending church or being a part of corporate worship, reading your Bible, and prayer. Prayer is a central part of the Christian life. Communication is the essential element of any relationship. Prayer has to be integrated into every part of our lives, and it must be a priority for us as believers. I'm reminded of a New Testament moment that we're all very familiar with, and it really communicates the spirit of this lesson and is consistent throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul in this section is giving some final instructions to the church at Thessalonica. He told them, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. We all know that these words are not only applicable to the Thessalonians. They should be our own call to worship as well, continually. We should be aiming to make this a character trait of our own like Daniel did. This New Testament principle is so clearly seen here in the book of Daniel as Daniel executes these attributes so well. He worshipped and he prayed regardless of the circumstances that were going on around him. Worship God regardless of the circumstances going on around you. He has already proven his faithful character to you. Your response should be to model this character after his faithful example. Choose to worship anyway. I mentioned this earlier, but this scene should feel kind of familiar to us since it looks so much like a story earlier in the book when King Nebuchadnezzar had thrown Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. A decree had been made, like we know, by a king in this story as well. Obedience to this decree would require dishonoring God and bowing to an idol. These two stories are so closely related, but there is one stark contrast between the two. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 were asked to bow in worship to another god. Daniel's story requires him to stop worshiping God altogether through prayer. Daniel's not being asked to pray to another god or bow to some other power. He's being commanded to stop his worship of the one true God of Israel altogether. This was a line in the sand that he simply wasn't going to cross. But Daniel's response is not exactly what you would expect. Verse 10 tells us, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. 
Maybe it's just the way that my American mind works. But this is so contrary from what you would expect from a decree that directly assaulted his faith. Instead of going out and making some grandstand speech about why prayer should be allowed and, he continu- and why we should be fighting for this right to pray, he just continued praying privately. He obediently kept doing what he'd always done, praying privately. He didn't try to hide it, but he also didn't make everyone around him forcefully aware of it either. This is a moment where we as the American church need to take a look at how we're responding to things that we perceive to be an attack on our faith. We often have the tendency to not only have a reaction to every little thing that happens around us, but most of the time we have an overreaction to every little thing that happens around us. This was something that really challenged us throughout this series. We should try and take the approach that Daniel took more often to the things happening around us. As believers in Christ, we are supposed to be loving people who are striving toward peace as God builds his kingdom through us. If we overreact to every small issue, how are we reflecting Christ? It's too easy for us with one social media post or one social media comment to completely ruin our testimony for the Lord. And I'm not saying don't have an opinion. Do have opinions. You should have opinions. Have them on many things and hold to those opinions firmly. This is the example of Daniel. There's a way to be faithful to the Lord without going out to the town square and shouting everyone down. We should look at our obstacles with the discerning wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself, before I react, how should I act? We need a lot more acts of obedient worship than we need to have public overreactions. But yes, Daniel's situation was very different from anything that we've ever faced in our lives. This law stated that he was not able to pray at all. This was not limited to public spaces. This regulated his behavior in the privacy of his own home. This was a direct assault on his faith. And he chose to react by changing absolutely nothing. Daniel just kept on praying. The men who wanted Daniel out of his place of power knew that Daniel would do exactly that. So they made a point to lurk outside of Daniel's window. They knew that they would find Daniel crying out to the Lord in private prayer for help in this situation. Daniel's faithful character was consistent, and their trap worked perfectly. As soon as they knew Daniel had knowingly violated the law that they tricked King Darius into writing, they brought it to his attention. Verse 11 says, Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into a lion's den? I just love how the writer here captures the deceptive tone of this group when they bring it to the king's attention. They say, did you not publish the law? Of course the king knows that he published this law. Imagine being a fly on the wall in that room. I can just see Darius' whole body language change 
as soon as he knows that he's been tricked by the group. You can sense the change in the air as the power shifts from the king to this group of governors. The king is bound by the law, and he knows it. So he says, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. You can just feel the disappointment of King Darius as he makes the decision for the decree to stand. He knows that the prescribed punishment is going to be death. And they were going to throw Daniel into a lion's den. This is a moment in the story where it's really easy for us to say, oh, the lion's den, I know all about this story. But this isn't exactly the Sunday school children's story that you probably have in your mind, though. This is not cartoon images of some sweet little house cats that are planning on snuggling Daniel through the night and keeping him warm. This is going to be an absolutely violent and brutal death. Surely you've seen some of these scenes on National Geographic, and you know that they are violent and brutal. This story so far has held a political plot, a major shift of power in court, and now in execution via the weaponization of government power. Execution by a den of lions is not something that has been seen in the East up to this point as a form of punishment. Instead, in those times, lions were sometimes corralled and kept in an enclosed arena for sport. The kings of this era would sometimes keep lions on hand, just have a chance to hunt them and kill them in a safe environment where they had a 100% chance of success. This is potentially a new and brutal form of punishment that the group of governors had come up with by just looking at their surroundings. They would go to any length to portray Daniel as an enemy of the state of Persia. This lion's den punishment, though, necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a death sentence as much as it was a trial by ordeal. When you hear the term trial by ordeal, what I want you to think of is the Salem witch trials. The idea was to let God decide if they were guilty or not by sparing them or not. But as you know, this was never really the intent of the accusers in these circumstances. When you tie weights to a woman's ankles and throw her in a lake, you're going to get the desired result and the end of her life. Daniel's ordeal was similar. Maybe one of their gods would spare him, but these starving lions at the bottom of a pit probably didn't care too much about what their gods thought. They knew Daniel was going to be absolutely slaughtered by these lions. King Darius tried all night to think of a way that he could save Daniel from this fate, but was ultimately bound by his own law. Since he put it into writing, it could not be revoked. He's about to lose his best advisor, all because he was manipulated by some other advisors. I can imagine that he is not only concerned for Daniel's safety, but he's also reeling about the way that he has been undermined. The outcome of this one incident will have lasting repercussions in court. But there are no way around, there's no way around it. The punishment has to be carried out, and Daniel was going to be executed. Verse 16 tells us, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the lion's den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. 
so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent all night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. They seal it shut with a stone placed over the den's entrance. Daniel would surely die a brutal and horrible death in just a matter of minutes. But, obviously, King Darius did have a glimmer of hope that the God of Daniel really was who Daniel believed him to be. Darius truly hoped that Daniel was going to be spared by his God. It's easier for us to try and identify with Daniel here and say that our faith is unwavering. We want so badly to believe that we are Daniel, and we would surely go to any extent to stand up and be faithful to the Lord. But if we're truly honest, it may be easier to identify with Darius here. We can so often find ourselves hoping that God really is who he says he is. We're not 100% sure of it, even ourselves. We want the benefits of God's presence in our lives without actually having to live by faith. Remember, this is the Hall of Faith series. Imagine the faith that you would need to trust that God is going to keep you safe in a den of predators like lions. But God stopped the mouths of lions. We want God to do his part, but we don't want to do our part of having a consistent walk of faith, of trusting that God is exactly who he proclaims to be. When we're in the middle of a conflict with our spouse or with our kids, it can be really hard to have the faith that God will carry us through. When we are grieving a loss, it can be hard to see God's hand and choose to be faithful even through the morning. When we're in financial trouble, it can be hard to see that God is still supplying our every need. Our walk of faith should not be rooted or dependent on our circumstances, but it should be rooted in the fact that God is faithful. It should be rooted in God's continual faithfulness in our lives. If we're honest, we likely more often identify with Darius than we do with Daniel. As we look at the state of the world around us, it's so easy to be a pessimist. There's war tearing apart the lives of families in Europe and Asia. There's hunger and civil unrest all over the world. Here in the U.S., we have high prices and political division and social unrest like we've never seen before. I sometimes get frustrated with God because it seems he involves himself in some things and not others. But I know that this is not the case because it's contrary to God's character. Regardless of present circumstances, God is still in control. Even in my mess, in my faithlessness, God is still faithfully doing his part. And I'll go ahead and assume that everybody in this room today isn't perfect, and I'll say that even in our mess, and even in our faithlessness, God is still faithfully doing his part. As we try to take inventory of our situations, we have to take an honest look at Daniel's situation. His situation is extreme. This is not to take away from any of our struggles, but it should encourage us to follow his example, because we can. We need to be worshiping the Lord anyway. This is such a great moment for us to be able to shift our perspective 
and worship the Lord, especially when we're facing struggles. Daniel has faced an opposing culture and continued his joyful worship of the Lord. Daniel has been wronged by people who hated him, and he has still chosen to worship the Lord with gladness. Facing certain death, we can confidently say that Daniel is still going to worship the Lord because that's what his character is. It's who he is. As the black night gives way to deep purple and then the orange signaling the new day, Darius has anxiously been waiting to discover Daniel's fate. He's been up all night. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't received any distraction to ease his mind. He is terrified of the consequences of his own actions. Darius rushes to the lion's den and quickly has the stone removed. Verse 19 says, At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the lion's den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? The break between the sound from this verse to the next was probably only seconds. But I'm sure to King Darius, this felt like hours. And finally, Daniel replies, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. This time, the trial by ordeal actually did work in the favor of the accused. God did know that Daniel was suffering innocently. God still was in charge. God still was watching. And God does care about his people. God has not forgotten us. God still cares about us, and he is always with us in the same way. Verse 23 tells us, The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king had not lost his most trusted advisor after all. And for that alone, he was overjoyed and grateful to God. God has once again, in this book of Daniel, flipped the script and overruled the evil intentions of men. Despite these terrible circumstances that Daniel found himself in, God was still in control. Here's another moment where the story really deviates from the watered-down version that I learned as a child. Verse 24 says, At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. What was supposed to be Daniel's fate instead became the fate of this entire group that had falsely accused him and fooled the king. Unfortunately, though, this was also the fate of their wives and their children. This is such an interesting moment of contrast between the character of God, of the universe, and the character of the king of the Persian Empire. Even as King Darius is trying, I I hope, to do what he thinks is right, 
It is tainted by his pagan perspective and ultimately results in the death of innocent people. Darius' standard of right and wrong here are off. God, however, sets the standard of what is right. And in the same exact situation, he chose to spare Daniel's life. King Darius wants revenge against these people who fooled him. And it did not offer any mercy. He truly wanted these people to suffer a greater pain than what they had caused him. God chose not only to show mercy and spare the life of his servant who is innocent, but he also chose not to avenge with punishment of others, and especially the innocent people who were involved. God chose to preserve life while King Darius destroys it. But even so, God uses this moment to point an entire nation to him through King Darius. Verse 25 and 26 tell us, Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and all the peoples of every language in all the earth, I have issued a decree that every part of my kingdom, people must fear and and reverence the God of Daniel. Daniel's story has so many moments that are applicable to our own lives. And yet, this story of the lion's den is so far removed from us that it can be hard to see what it even has to do with us. We see God moving, but we can't relate at all to Daniel's circumstances here. Daniel is living under the captive power of another nation that is the enemy of God. They actively fight against the will of God in pursuit of their own glory. This is not our situation at all. Daniel's faith was directly attacked in a way that would make it impossible for him to worship the Lord without breaking the law in both public and in private. We, at least here in America, are so far removed from this form of circumstance. We have not had any direct attack on our faith. We're free to worship in any way that we see fit. When was the last time that you saw someone thrown into a den of lions? When did you last see a trial where a judge and jury revoke someone's right to personal worship? When was the last time that you actually were even persecuted at all? And mean Facebook comments and mean tweets don't count. The answer for all of us is never. This has never happened to us. So it's difficult to look into this story and not over-apply it to our circumstance, even though the two look nothing alike. So what do we have to do with all this? What does this have to do with us? A Christian, as Christians in modern America, we will eventually find ourselves in conflict with some element of culture too. We're going to have to be, and we're going to have to make ourselves countercultural. Daniel lived in a way that distinguished himself from culture. And as we live our lives in the kingdom of God, we will face the same thing. God's kingdom must be the priority for our lives. Now this is not an excuse to be aggressive, or to be loud about it. We are called to love those around us regardless of where they fall on the spectrum of culture. 
Daniel did exactly what God asked him to do, privately. Our job is not to stand out on a soapbox and scream about how we're being persecuted. We ought to be living with the expectation of persecution and the faith of God and the faith that God, in the end, is going to work it all out. We can rest in the fact that God is good, no matter how bad things look to us. If persecution comes, pray anyway. If judgment comes, pray anyway. We need to be making disciples regardless of the circumstances that surround us in our culture. A mistake that we make is that we often put too much stock into what the government is doing. And then that controls the way that we think and the way that we interact with all of the others around us. We can become obsessed with criticizing the culture around us so much that it consumes us. We're too focused on trying to get things back to the way they used to be that we miss opportunities that are right in front of us right now. We, are, we spend so much time glorifying the good old days instead of having faith in the days right now. Our faith should be grounded on the character of God because he is the only one who continually proves himself to be worthy of that faithfulness. So what I want us to do today is I want us to take a moment and we need to renew our commitment to put our faith in God and let culture around us work how it's going to work. God's going to be the constant in our lives. What I want us to do is lean into the power of God. Lean into God's faithfulness. God is going to provide all of the courage that you need to live for him. Daniel set an example for us by making worship not only something that he did, but he also made it a part of his personal character. Our consistency in worship has lagged a little bit over these COVID years. Each one of us needs to renew this commitment that we will meet to worship with our church. We need to renew these private disciplines of worship as well. We need to renew our devotion to commit our wealth to the mission of God. We need to renew our devotion for making disciples and growing God's kingdom. So today, I want it to be a renewal day, this Sunday. I want today to be a time of peace. There, it's, it is a time of peace here in the United States. There's no real opposition. It's never going to be easier to worship the Lord than it is right now. It's never going to be easier to pray or come to church or worship the Lord in however you see fit than it is today. We should have the expectation of it getting more difficult. If you won't be faithful right now when it's easy, can you expect to be faithful in the day where difficulty does come? Because it will come. Establish the practices of worship and discipleship and prayer now. Make these pillars of your identity now. Make these the, thing, the foundation that your family is built on now. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's reflect on God wants from us today. You, 
just like Daniel, have to make the daily decision to make prayer a habit and a priority. Daniel made his personal time with the Lord so much of who he was that absolutely nothing changed when the law changed. Would people assume you to be faithful in your action because your character demands it? You have to make the choice to worship God now so that when the day, when the day comes that things do get harder, and they will, expect that, you continue giving God the worship that he so much deserves. Make prayer a priority now. Make corporate worship a priority now. Make making disciples a priority now. So that when things do get difficult, you can have the Daniel reaction and nothing changes. I want us to recenter, focus on God, and start giving Him the priority of your life. Maybe today you're facing a trial and you can't see how God is good. Even in this circumstance, you need to be encouraged by others who have already experienced these things. God's comfort and goodness is visible in a trial. Be comforted by the way that he has carried others through things that you're probably facing right now. Let yourself be ministered to by people who have walked where you have walked. Daniel was in a terrible, terrible circumstance, yet he chose to keep on with the practices that he had already, he already knew were the right things to do. If you're struggling with making those practices a part of your life, I want you to find yourself, find a way to get into a discipleship relationship. These are the things that will help us to be accountable to each other and grow these just faithful practices that have to be a part of who we are now. We've got deacons here in the front and in the back. Our deacons are always ready to pray for you. They're ready to pray with you. They're ready to talk with you. Don't be afraid of those awkward or uncomfortable conversations. Make those happen. They're valuable. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and take that step of courage. Take Daniel's example. Take that step of courage and be faithful and start following through with what God expects from us and what God so well deserves. Today, you might experience a turning point in your faith by praying with one of them. If you're feeling that way today, just take a moment and make your way out. Find one of them. They'll be glad to talk to you. If you want to make, take a moment there on your own and make a, take a moment of personal renewal and renew commitments to God that you know you should have but haven't been the best about lately, do that too. Find a place of prayer right now.
Maybe today your circumstance is even a little bit different than that. Maybe you haven't even taken the step of having a faith to know Jesus at all. Today can be the day to begin that journey. If you don't know about the faithful and trustworthy and saving character of Christ yet, today is the day to learn. Don't wait on that. God is in control. We just need to lean into him. Be, have faith that he is in control. Regardless of our present circumstances, God is in control. God is good, and he will give you the strength and the courage that you need to live out your life in his kingdom. Stand with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we are so grateful for who you are. Lord, we are so grateful for your consistent faithfulness, even where ours lacks. We are so grateful for the constant of your love, even if we aren't seeing it in the way that we'd hoped. God, we are so grateful that you are absolutely in control regardless of the present circumstances around us. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who are rooted in faith, knowing that you are in control at the end of this study. Help us to be a people who are rooted and built on worship. Help us to be a people who are rooted in prayer. Help us to really prioritize and make prayer a foundation of the way that we live our lives. Help us to make our faith not just something that we do from time to time, but make it a character trait, something that the people all around us see every day. Help us to be a shining beacon of light for your kingdom to the world around us. God, help us to show your love in a way that is meaningful and impactful to the people who so desperately need to see your love. God, we're so grateful for stories like Daniel's. We're so grateful for examples that you give us in your word to help us to find strength and courage to live a bold and faithful lifestyle like you have called us to live. And God, I pray that each person in this room would choose every day to make that a choice, make that choice of living a bold and faithful lifestyle for you. God, just help us to love you well. Help us to love others well. And help us to be a true reflection of you here on earth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to close out today with the words of King Darius that he gave after Daniel safely came out of the lion's den the next morning. He spoke words about God that remain true 
and should encourage us as we go out this week. He said, For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. We serve an incredible and powerful and rescuing Savior, and he deserves our devotion. I pray that from here, you go out determined to live a life that is characterized by faithfulness to him. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you next Sunday.